Welcome to Dissenting Opinions, a podcast by the Constitutional Law Institute at the University of Chicago Law School. I'm your host, William Bode, and you're listening to a special series we're calling Deep Dive, where Professor Adam Chilton and I will take a deep dive into originalism. We recorded this series each week of our winter quarter over Zoom in front of a quote-unquote live audience of students. So if there are things that seem out of context or don't make sense, that's why. Without further ado, let's deep dive into originalism. Welcome back to episode three of Deep Dive, a positive turn. Apologies to all true originalism devotees that we managed to schedule this recording at the same time as another lunch talk on originalism. As Adam joked to me before we got started, who would have thought it was possible for us to have two uh, originalism talks at the same time in Chicago? Uh, and as I joked back, especially given that there's only one originalist on the faculty, uh, I am impressed at our ability to have multiple originalism talks at the same time. But that's the embarrassment of riches we live in, and I'm excited about it. Okay. Last couple times we've been talking about originalism. I hope we're on the same page. We walked through some of the basic preliminary arguments for originalism, which stemmed partly from you know, just arguments about what it is to what it is to read words, and partly from some of the consequences that, that come from interpreting the Constitution in line with how it's originally enacted, and possibly dangerous consequences that come from interpreting the Constitution differently or letting judges do something different. And then Adam uh, pushed back with a lot of the reasons to be concerned about originalism, including that uh, it seems like it's not really what our what our real practice is. It changing to originalism comes with a lot of sort of moral and practical costs and not what most countries do and doesn't seem like a natural or good way to run a legal system. So why would we suddenly create this crazy thing and start trying to impose it on impose it on constitutional law? Uh, I think there's a lot of merit to those critiques. I tried to give the best sort of answers I thought there were to them last week, but I think there's a lot to those critiques. And this more or less brings us to the state of my brain uh, less than 10 years ago, when I started worrying about uh, originalism and thinking that if if it's right, if it's right that originalism is not currently what what marks our constitutional law, if we currently have some other kind of constitutional law here, maybe we shouldn't change. You know, that the arguments for originalism, while I think some of them are good, are not so good that they necessarily justify overthrowing some other system that works that works okay. And so that led to what I call the positive turn, uh, which is the question of, well, what is our actual law of constitutional interpretation? What is it judges do? What is it everybody who interprets the Constitution does? Like what, you know, we just had to sort of approach our constitutional law system as a as an outsider, as an anthropologist trying to understand the weird stuff judges talk about. What would you say about it? And I think that the more you look at it, the more you come away thinking, actually, there's a lot of originalism in our law right now. The sort of claim by by people like David Strauss and others that that we really have a common law system just as a descriptive matter uh, doesn't seem right. And maybe this part's more of a stretch, but I think it's true. There's so much originalism that the best way to describe our system of constitutional law is it's originalism. It's got some some complications. It's It certainly allows for things like precedent, but it's originalism. So let me just jump in here to make sure I'm clear. So you're starting with the descriptive claim that actually that our system already is quite originalist and that if we were to just describe what we're doing that originalism is a reasonable way to explain what's going on yeah yeah let's let i think so so let let, let me try to break this into three parts because i think there are so many different ways to disagree with this that i don't want to lose track of them all but i thought maybe first we talk about the sense in which i mean it the sense of like even this just define our terms so to speak like what, what does it mean for originalism to be our law? Then we talk about the evidence, and then we can talk about whether that sort of answers any of the questions or objections that, that we've raised, whether that actually gets us anywhere. Does that seem fair? Yeah, that seems like a good approach. Okay. Thanks for laying it out. All right. So what does it mean for originalism to be our law? What's even the claim? So I guess that, that claim has two important words in it, uh, originalism and law. <laughs> Ours kind of important, but we'll skip that. So when I say originalism... Here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that every single Supreme Court decision or other judicial dispute is handled only by looking at sources dated 1789 and earlier, right? Like you could imagine a version of, of judges only do originalism is literally they look at the words, 
you look at things people said up to you know the time it was enacted and all evidence after that or all things after that are irrelevant uh, i don't mean that got it uh just so we're clear that is a pretty standard definition of what originalism means i mean i made it sound kind of uh, so that is a that is a thing people sometimes mean by originalism i'm not sure whether it's standard because so here's this gets us and this gets us back to something we talked about on the first day so suppose that the original meaning of the constitution includes some phrases that that the framers themselves intended to be somewhat open-ended i think i think you talked about this you know some things are are clear rules but suppose the original meaning of cruel and unusual punishments was something like you know don't do anything that hurts people if it hasn't been done in a long time that's a plausible then to figure out if something is cruel and unusual as an originalist you would have to look to some subsequent evidence you have to look to like the original meaning itself would tell you you have to look to other things that have happened since then. Yeah, although I mean, I guess this is all semantic, and originalism's originalists love being semantic. But to understand what the meaning of the Constitution is and what is to perform cons- the constitutional aspect of interpretation, you'd only be looking to things 1790 or earlier, which is you take the Eighth Amendment's prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment to understand what it means to be cruel and unusual. You'd learn that this means anything that hasn't been done for a long time. Now, it's true then you'd have to look at sources post-1790, but not for the constitutional interpretation piece, just for the application of whether or not a given statute violates them or something like this. Maybe now I'm being the semantic no, one. No, that's but... great. And I, you know, despite being an originalist and a law professor, I actually don't care a lot about the labels. So I, I'm open to labeling this whole thing something else, but but this is exactly right. So when you care about the actual meaning of the words in the constitution that you should go back to 1789 and you should only look at subsequent stuff to the extent that what the rules you find in 1789 permit you to got it okay the, some places the sort of like application meaning thing gets a little blurry the most important of which is also precedent so if you go back and look at the original meaning of the constitution in 1789 and you conclude that the original meaning of the constitution permits you to use precedent to resolve cases which most people who've looked at it conclude, then it's okay for an originalist judge to use precedent as long as they're using it in the way that the Constitution says. It wouldn't be to change the meaning of the Constitution. They wouldn't say, oh, freedom of speech now means whatever crazy stuff it means in the 21st century. They just say, you know, we are permitted in deciding this case to rely on precedent. Maybe technically the meaning remains the same, but in thinking about the application today, we're allowed to use precedent. Again, if it were allowed at the founding. Okay, got it. All right, so that's not what you mean, though. So now we're getting to what I, sorry, now we've moved from what I don't mean to what. That's what other people think, now what the original turn is. So when I say originalism is our law, what I mean is judges use methods of interpretation that are permitted by the original meaning of the Constitution. So they either use the original meaning of the Constitution itself, or they use things like precedent or like applications for the cruel and unusual punishments clause that are themselves permitted by the original meaning of the constitution they never do something that the original meaning of the constitution forbids they never they never go outside that so everything traces back to the original meaning of the constitution sometimes it traces back in like one step sometimes it traces back in two or three steps but it always traces back and if you can show that some interpretation that the court has come up with involves like a, a sharp break from what the original meaning of the constitution permitted no, it's not what the Constitution permitted, and precedent doesn't permit you to get away from it, or any of these other things don't permit you to get away from it, then you've shown something is not originalist. That's what I mean. Okay. All right. I guess part of the ballgame now just becomes understanding what methods of interpretation were allowed at the founding and how different that is from what other people understand. Right. For instance, if you know the Straussians are correct that the founders were okay with the idea that the Constitution was authorization to create federal common law on constitutional questions, in some sense, you guys would be on the same page, right? If he is right on that, basically. If he's right on that empirically, yes. So big, I mean, this, well, I described this as a semantic question. A huge part of what it does is it hopefully will flesh out non-originalist accounts in a more careful way to figure out, so, so people who have a non-originalist account of constitution will often say something like, well, the framers weren't originalists, so we shouldn't be originalists either. And anyway, who cares what they thought because we should just do blah, 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 because it makes sense. And I guess I'm saying that's actually two very different kinds of claims packaged together. The first is an empirical claim, which if true, even originalists should accept because you can't, 
I think you can't be more originalists than the framers themselves. So if it was permissible to framing, it's in this sense originalist. And we can, again, relabel it if we need to, like framers originalism or something. But the second claim is not an empirical claim, but a normative claim that doesn't rest on the history. And we need to know and respond to these claims. Am I supposed to go back and, and actually like read David Strauss's history and come up with a historical critique? Or when I do that, is he going to roll his eyes and say like, nobody cares what the framers think? Well, like that wasn't the point. Got it. Okay. All right. I understand the distinction between these two claims. So that's the claim, which the Supreme Court is originalist. They care about pedigree and everything back to the founding. And then the claim that it's our law is when Supreme Court justices or anybody else have to explain why they're ruling the way they do, or when people have to make arguments to the court to rule in different ways, this is the kind of argument they have to make. It's like the rules for what kinds of arguments and what kinds of justifications are permissible. It's not to say that the court always gets things right. So the court gets things wrong, you know, so that doesn't, so I'm not saying that every Supreme Court ruling ever, or even like the most recent Supreme Court rulings, all match what I think the correct understanding of the Constitution is. But I'm saying they all use originalism as the, as the guide to who's right. Got it. Okay. So on that, are you, so your claim is that this has been uninterruptedly that people use originalism as the guide to what's right? Or this is like some moment where we can say, as of this point, the court decided it. Good. I guess we are going to have to define all four words. So I think, so that was originalism, that was law, now is. <laughs> right. So I have not tried to prove that this has been uninterruptedly our law. And I think it's probably not. Uh, I think there probably have been periods where if you were just trying to look descriptively at what our law was, you wouldn't say it's all originalism all the time. A little hard for me to know, because as long as, as, long as I've been alive, originalism has been such a rich part of constitutional interpretation, or at least as long as I've been reading things written by judges about law. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I were alive during the war in court, I would not have written this article and people would not think it was true. Now, I don't know whether, the, whether those gaps are big or small. I'm inclined to think they're actually kind of small. At first, I thought they were big. But then the more things I read, the more originalism I find in all sorts of weird moments in history. So, but I'm, I'm just going to stick with the like currently or in like the current generation of law. This is the set of arguments that are, that are permissible. I think probably in some previous generation that some of our colleagues were alive for, there was some other stuff out there. But but the claim is just that this is our law. And then our, since now we've done this, not claiming this is true of all uh, constitutional law everywhere. I don't think it's true of lots of other countries, for reasons we've talked about. I'm not even convinced it's true of all state constitutions, which sometimes have their own norms. So it's really just like in terms of interpretation of the federal constitution in the United States. Got it. Okay. So I have a bunch of questions, but I'm not sure where they fit into the framework. Uh, uh, go for it, and we'll and I'll we can postpone the ones that I don't I'm not ready for. Okay. So one question then is to the extent that it's possible that the degree to which originalism is our law has changed over time and that this is thing has been inconsistent. Uh, to the extent that that's true, how is it that the Supreme Court is capable of making meta rules about what the law is about the Constitution via dicta? It feels like a weird way to be like, you know, all of the rules that establish what is constitutional and what is constitutional are going to be, you know, decided without even the Supreme Court having to issue an opinion directly on point. couple things. So I don't, I mean... First, I don't think it's just a matter of like, what does the Supreme Court do? So I don't think the Supreme Court alone can change it. This is really reflecting something about our legal culture more broadly. It's also what do the lawyers argue to the justices and the fact that the justices make arguments this way and other people perceive them as not being totally crazy talk. There's like a sort of a whole legal culture thing, which is the Supreme Court is just the, the most important and useful data set. But still, I, I think, I mean, there is this practical sense in which if the Supreme Court started repeatedly signaling that they didn't care about originalism at all. Smart lawyers would probably stop doing it, and over time, our legal culture would change. So so I fight the hypo a little bit. Then the other part of the question, I don't know, maybe maybe we defer a little bit until we get to whether this matters, right? So maybe maybe I'm going to win and say, yes, this is, this is in fact our law, but what we've also seen is that Supreme Court justices can like subtly transform our constitutional law if they want to. So, so who cares, Will? They should just start subtly transforming it into something other than originalism. I'll just I'll, I'll put that as a possible critique, which I think is wrong, but okay, all right. What else you got? Well, I I think then once this is the claim is that or what originalism means 
is the methods of constitutional interpretation and theory that were seen as viable methods as of 1789. Then the whole question just becomes, what were the viable methods of interpretation in 1789? And you could be end up being saying something quite strong here or something extremely weak, which is, if I, I were to believe, as I do, in some version of that most judges are engaged in this sort of similar common law practice where they care about the text, but not exclusively. They care about the doctrine, but not exclusively. They care about the practical and moral implications of their decisions. And they're trying to like, you know, muddle through on these different questions to get to the right answer. And that's just sort of what judging is and has always been. Yeah, that's the way, you know, British common law judges thought about this 400 years ago, the way that American founders probably understood the role of judges 240 years ago or whatever. And that is the way that many people understand the the rule today. And if you're just saying that the law is that judges should engage in judging, like, yeah, sure, that's not saying much at all. But if what you're saying is that there is a set of things that, you know, other constitutional law professors think are judging and what the Supreme Court is up to, but that you've got a narrow set of what they're allowed to, which arguments they're allowed to make and other arguments that are now off the table since, you know, since you wrote this article and you guys discovered originalism as our law, that's, that then is potentially a huge claim. So, so that's what I'm curious on. To what extent are you smuggling in a narrow claim through this guise of originalism being our law, which sounds extremely disruptive, or are you being extremely disruptive? Right. So this is the only a law professor do, would do, right, is to appear to say something obviously false and incredibly disruptive, but then upon investigation, it turns out that it's secretly a modest claim that's totally harmless. Yeah, Normal. that does seem like your MO, actually. The, the so, smart yeah. form of smuggling, though, is the opposite, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is like, I don't know, whatever the opposite of the Trojan horse is, where you, like, wheel up some giant, like, cannon, and then it turns out that it's actually just, like, a wooden cutout. It's not going to hurt anybody. Yeah, that's right. We'll build the anti-Trojan horse. Uh, <laughs> so first, I, I mean, I think the first is doing some work. So I think if we could actually all be on the same page, that judges should just judge the way they've always judged, that I think would be useful progress. Because you regularly read even very smart constitutional law professors at this school and others openly arguing that judges should do something else. Like, you know, I mean, you read like a cost-benefit critique of like all of constitutional law, the basic idea of which is just like, well, who cares about, you know, going through text, doctrine, blah, 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 blah. This is just a terrible idea. We just should stop doing it. And now those arguments don't get a lot of uptake with judges. I think that tells us something, but you know, that's correct that they don't, they shouldn't get a lot of uptake with judges and like shoring up that piece of the system is actually like a, it is a useful thing to do. But I think that, I think we, I think the smuggling and the not even smuggling anymore, we're opening it, we're opening it up. I think there are like real consequences. So if we can get everybody on board that not only should judges judge rather than doing something else, but they have to judge in more or less the same way judges have always judged, then I think a lot of the methods of constitutional interpretation that some law professors like today are open to historical critique and a lot of them will fail. So I think I do think when we look at what was the common law method back at the founding or you know shortly thereafter, it's gonna look very different. They lived in a world without eerie. So they didn't have the idea that doing common law was necessarily like making law or making policy judgments. They lived in a world with a very different form of precedent where they didn't have the idea that judges could just like decide a case and that was suddenly binding like an administrative rule. So I do think once we once we sort of connect ourselves to the founding, it's gonna come with it's gonna come with consequences. All right. Well, no eerie and no no binding precedent or massive consequences. If that's what, if that's what now you want to defend as part of that, those seem like uh, bad ideas to me. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll just. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't know where this goes in my own scheme either. Maybe this is just going to go in. Uh, is this all a bad idea? But on precedent, uh, just because I think it's helpful to to clear it up before we go any further. I don't mean there's no such thing as constitutional precedent. I think there was. Like you look at you look at all cases at, in and around the founding. They talk about prior, prior cases. They think that like how a judge decided something beforehand is relevant and useful and you shouldn't go against that casually but they do have a very different way of thinking about it than we do now so they don't have what they don't have is the the modern i guess the, the like stare decisis concept like once the court has spoken that settles it and everybody's supposed to move on they instead have much more of a sense of like individual precedents build up each precedent is evidence of the right answer to a question but they don't like they don't settle things with the same kind of authority as a modern decision does so it's a more common law system in some ways and less like our kind of the Supreme Court decides Bush versus Gore and they just tell us to shut up and get over it. 
Yeah. Does anyone really believe in the like really strong version of story decisis? Like that, that, I mean, it just does, descriptively doesn't seem like that, that happens. So if what you're saying is that they were just more honest about the status of precedent in their way that they evaluated it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so I, I do think now there's a lot of dishonesty in our status of precedent. I mean, the Supreme court seems to like, in the sense that the Supreme court seems to think once they issue one ruling on a big question, they get to be done with it. And like, that it's sort of annoying if people keep bothering them about it. So, I mean, and you can see why it would fit there the way they, they, they'd rather do annoying, politically costly, fractious things less often rather than more often. So you can see why it would fit their sort of need for power to, to, to give us that story. I feel like often that's just an excuse for, you know, minimal exercise of discretionary cert, right? Which is, you know, here's some case that we've already decided once instead of re-deciding this issue we won't bother with important cases and just let the circuit courts decide them unless we want to say something different about the status of the law or overturn the circuit court opinion. Right. Right. But it's not clear that it's actually really something true about the status of precedent. It's just their status of like not wanting to deal with more cases. Well, good, good. Maybe so. And, but I guess what I mean is these things reveal you know, that, that this version of the common law method is a little bit less like judges can just decide that something is a good idea and put it in an opinion and boom, it's done. Right. Understand that, like, they can't just put something in an opinion and it automatically becomes uh, the law. It requires, you know, repetition and a bunch of people to agree, and so it's slower for it to have like actual uptake. All right, so let me ask you to for a concrete example. Then, so I've been working on uh, an article with some of our past uh, and current colleagues on affirmative action in higher education, and here you have this string of Supreme Court decisions, starting at least with Baki maybe earlier, but through Grutter and Fisher, that all are about to be relevant, presumably, I guess, we are all assuming that are going to make it back to the court even yet again, where the diversity rationale and other rationales for affirmative action in higher education are discussed and considered. <sighs> Would an originalist, if they were to get whatever the new, the next affirmative action challenges, for instance, the uh, challenge to Harvard College's current admissions programs, would they just like start with the text of the 14th Amendment or, you know, one of the various statutory guides, or would they actually go through Baki and Grutter and Fisher to try to think about what the requirement and what is and is not constitutional? Okay, good. Yeah. So I think all originalists would care about what the previous cases said. I think all originalists on the court would agree that precedent has some role in constitutional interpretation. I think the right view, so an originalist who, who thought about these things the right way, would be convinced that they shouldn't follow those cases if they're clearly wrong. So if they, like, those cases are sort of a, a good starting point. And if you go back to the debates over the 14th Amendment and the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, you can't really figure it out because they didn't think about affirmative action the same way we think about it today or, or whatever. Then you'd probably stick with the precedent. But if you went back and were pretty convinced that actually they had a, you know, a symmetrical rule for race, so that discriminating against people of one race the same as the other, or, you know, whatever. If you're pretty convinced those cases were wrong, then you'd overturn them. Now, I think there are people who think of themselves as originalists and have a different view of precedent. So Justice Barrett wrote about precedent before she joined the court, and she seems to think that precedent can play a stronger role than what I just described. That's a, you know, that's a debate about the original meaning of precedent that I have not prevailed in. But but if I were right about it, right, right, then the precedent would have less of a role. And that's obviously in practice a huge amount of people care about for these debates about originalism. So if the precedent is incorrect, to you, it has no no value in in saying that we've got some settled doctrine. It's something like I mean, this is the the uh, original article that, that pr proposed this was something like the Chevron standard. So, you know, if there's some band of uncertainty, sixty percent either way, seventy percent either way, where you follow precedent, and then some band of certainty outside of which precedent is wrong. I don't know how much you know you could argue with the numbers, but that's the idea. Because there are instances where people say, well, even if this precedent is wrong or under some original understanding or something like that, we're now 100 years in, why would you change it? But I feel like no one's, not very many people are very consistent on that attitude and that there, there were precedents that are 100 years in that they think are, in whatever way, discriminatory, problematic, cause public policy consequences, they'd be willing to change them. So I think that a lot of people just make um, instrumental arguments about whether or not they're willing to change things based on this, the, how settled the precedent is. Okay, good. So I think, I think this is moving us to phase two, which is, like, now we've got the claim, is there evidence okay. that this is actually how the court thinks about constitutional law? And one of the most important places to look is, how does the court actually treat precedent, right? So some of the evidence in favor of the view that originalism is our law is 
it's never too late to overturn precedent. Everybody seems to agree it's never too late. Like, there's no such thing as a precedent that's beyond question if you think it's wrong enough. And when the justices talk about the precedent being wrong, they often talk about it being wrong like from the beginning. Like if this decision was a mistake, we shouldn't have decided it that way and we should now fix it. They don't, if, if we lived in a sort of the world that David Strauss describes of sort of just like common law evolution, you'd expect them to say, well, look, this decision was right then, but now we're changing the decision. That would be the more natural way to talk about it. But instead we see a lot of, you know, for certain things, the justices are, for each justice they're especially convinced is, are wrong. It's sort of never off the table to say, you know, this is clearly wrong and it was a mistake and we need to fix it. Okay, how often is that true when it's judges second-guessing the opinions of previous justices versus true of justices saying about their own opinion? Because if you take examples like, you know, Brown v. Board overturning Plessy, of course that's the way it's described, or even the recent, in the Trump travel ban litigation, the discussion of overturning Korematsu, it is like, this was wrong, it was always wrong, can't believe how wrong these prior people were because they were so, so wrong. But those cases are instances where the justices that wrote and signed those opinions were long off the court, if not long dead, I think, in in every instance. And so that's the way they describe it, but makes it easier to say what their view is and also to move away from it to justify the break. But I'm not sure how like critical it is, that that argumentative move. Well, so I do think these are the same argumentative move for justices who are on the court. So like in Citizens United... Justice Kennedy overturns, you know, prior free speech precedents that had upheld restrictions on corporate speech. And his main arguments are citations to his own dissent in the previous case. Like, it's mostly not devoted to, oh, that decision was right before, but now it's time to fix it. It's mostly, my colleagues were wrong then, <laughs> as I said at the time, and now yeah, all right. I'm right for the reasons I said at the time. Yeah, there's, that, that. yeah, right. So that definitely happens, where the justices put down the marker in an opinion, and then they wait until there's changes in the composition of the court, and finally they have the votes to do something, right? And um, that is a way that precedence changes. So I guess that's right. It, it happens to be the case that there is people that thought it was wrong at the time that it was decided that they then, and it might be those same people. So I think I mean that's so. So you see that, and I, now you know. I think if you just had these these two things uh, alone, you might say, well, look, all this shows is that originalism is really important, and precedence also really important. And so, you know, really the best, I think, this, I think this is the best plausible competitor to the view that originalism is our law, is really we have a, two, a two-pronged law. Our, long is, our law is some amount of originalism and some amount of precedent. And you could just, like, your simple toy model of constitutional law could just be those two things. That would also be, like, really clarifying and making clear there isn't some third thing. Because, again, there are a lot of judges, even a lot of scholars, even David Strauss, who think there is, like, a third thing besides originalism and precedent. Namely, you get to make new precedents when you think they're really morally good without caring about originalism. So, so even if we could say we're limited to originalism precedent, that would be helpful. And you still, I mean, how does precedent evolve if there isn't some third thing? Uh, well, so, so right, so it could evolve, again, if you just had, if originalism plus precedent, it could be, all, all we do is have precedent, and then we try to overrule them when they got the original meaning wrong, and get them closer to originalism. So it's, we're, we're originalism working itself pure. We're slowly getting rid of the wrong non-originalist precedents over time you know maybe there are a few that, that we'll never get rid of but we're always working in a, in a direction towards more originals than what we're trying to do got it okay and then the view of precedent is not that it is the way that it builds up is that there's new cases that are considered and those new cases require us to under, figure out what the original meaning is but it's not that we like have some precedent and then we learn facts about the world and then we sl- slowly move the... So this is a rejection of com- a common law approach if you don't think that the judges are allowed to like use their eyes and their knowledge of the world and their assessment of empirical consequences to nudge the law in particular directions. Partly, or it's a rejection of... I mean, it's a rejection of what some people would mean by it. So it's still like the common law approach. We'd say there's written law that's ultimately supreme. Judges get to interpret law in the shadow of it but the written law is ultimately supreme, the same way statutes trump common law decisions. And like the common law, you know, for some of these things, like, like when we started with applications, you know, you might still have to use your eyes and experience to help figure out the best application of a provision, the meaning of which is originally fixed. So if, if you know, the original meaning of unreasonable searches and seizures has some test that, that requires you to learn more uh, over time about what counts as unreasonable, what doesn't, it's still, it's not like judges are going to be potted plants. 
but it's different from the regime where we imagine judges are just like slowly deciding cases and learning what kind of contract law makes for a better society. Got it. So is your view then that if this was, we're slowly working ourselves pure, that at some point we're going to be like, hey, we're done with incorporation and all of a sudden the Bill of Rights doesn't apply against the states. And also, you know, thinking that the First Amendment regulates the administrative branch, that was that was silly of us because we forgot that the First Amendment just used the word Congress. And, you know, also Bowling v. Sharp is silly and the federal government's allowed to engage in explicit race-based uh, decisions because the text of the 14th Amendment doesn't forbid it. And the, this Fifth Amendment application no one had in mind, et cetera. So we're like, we get rid of these like core features of our constitutional system as we work ourselves here? Or is precedent in those cases get to stay? Uh, no, no, and maybe yes. So, so I think, I mean, I think incorporation is probably here to stay because it's probably right as a matter of the original meaning of the Constitution. I reserve judgment on this until I finish teaching my seminar on the original meaning of the Privileges Immunities Clause next quarter. But that is the like academic consensus of originalists at this point, I think. Is, hold on, wait a second, that like privileges, immunities, limits what states are able to do and that that then is circumscribed by whatever was in the Constitution. And so if the federal government can't do it, citizens have privileges, immunities, something, 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 that's how you get the incorporation? Yeah, either either directly or indirectly. So there's a consensus that things like free speech are protected by the privileges, immunities clause and not a consensus about the route, whether it's that privileges, immunities means the privileges and immunities that are contained in the constitution against the federal government, which is what some people said at the time, or privileges and immunities means something else, like things that were widely regarded as really important rights at the time, a set that like largely, but not perfectly overlaps with the Bill of Rights. But I think there's a consensus that privileges and immunities protects a bunch of stuff that will resemble the incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Got it. Okay. Um, the free speech clause applies to the administrative branch because of the due process clause, which says the executive can't deprive people of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And that requires them to go through Congress, and that requires that triggers the free speech clause. It's not; it won't be exactly the same, but executive duration of free speech is pretty easy. The third one that made me nervous. Oh yeah, the equal protection clause applying to the federal government. This is this is harder. There is like a revival of weird originalist theories trying to explain why the federal government is bound by these by anti-discrimination norms but i don't think any of them none of them have yet persuaded like most people who care about the answer to that and i mean that may be you know, maybe you're asking an empirical question like is the court gonna overrule those precedents or will it find some dodge to keep them and if they found some dodge to keep them you know maybe that weakens my claim that originalism is our law although it depends on the dodge right if they come up with a dodge like they buy one of these weird originalist arguments that just shows how much they care about originalist arguments but if you're asking, like, what's the actual logical consequence? I do think the federal government is free to discriminate and that this would actually have good consequences if we recognize this. What's the, well, what are the good consequences? So the good consequence is at this point, equal protection doctrine is used against the federal government almost exclusively to strike down from action programs. There's a great article by Richard Primus called Bowling Alone that goes through, like, you know, every case where race discrimination with the federal government is invalidated and the overwhelming majority is the court striking down various forms of discrimination in favor of minorities. The federal government, just the gap between federal government policies and Supreme Court justices never gets large enough for the federal government to do something that the Supreme Court is willing to stop. Sensible. Got it. Hold on. So what we're saying is that, roughly speaking, in exchange to integrate the D.C. school district a little faster, since then we can't have affirmative action at the federal government? Yeah. That was the constitutional trade we made? Yeah. That's true. That was a that was a shit trade. <laughs> and that, uh, I mean, obviously, I want the D.C. school district integrated as fast as possible. But um, but, you know, more complicated once you bring in things other than race. So once you bring in sex and sexual orientation and stuff like that, but on race discrimination. And- that's very I, I didn't know that. All right. That's interesting. What so else you got? I don't know if this is I don't know if this is helping or not. But so so in terms of evidence that originals are law, we've got the way the court talks about precedent. And here's the other the other. I guess two strongest points are in cases where there's no precedent, everybody like naturally becomes originalists. Like when you start talking about, you know, can you impeach uh, an ex-president who's no longer president or the constitutionality of recess appointments or like these various things that come up where there's no precedent, like all the arguments are, are heavily originalist. That's just like the natural vocabulary everybody uses. And you never see court say things like, this is the original meaning, but we just don't care. Maybe, again, maybe outside of precedent, I'll even there, 
just talked about that, but like you never see them say what you'd expect them to say. Like the original meaning is X, but like, hey, that provision was written 200 years ago by a bunch of white property owning. They never say that. They never ever say that. Okay, a few thoughts on this. So first off, the claim that when something is a new question where we don't have precedent on it, that we first go to the text, that sounds descriptively right to me, but that also sounds like the Straussian common law constitutional claim, which is roughly speaking that after an amendment is passed, if it was passed clearly to settle some question that we understand that like that thing that it just answered is off the table for the foreseeable future. And that, you know, we need to over time figure out what this means. And we, we start with the, the text or whatever else. And so we want to know if you can impeach a president after they left office, you first go back and figure out what the impeachment clause says and then what people thought it meant. And then you start looking to the post-Civil War precedent or whatever that we have on this and the practical arguments and whatever else. That seems like what everyone's on the same page as though. So it's weird to use that as an evidence that originalism is our law. And if that that's the part of the debate that no one's, no one's arguing against. So the real claim is even if you start by looking at the Constitution, can over time we drift away to things like Bowling v. Sharp or Bakke or whatever else it is that like takes the text of the 14th Amendment or the First Amendment or something else, but then departs from it over time. The, the latter claim that no one ever says we're ignoring the original meaning, yes, that's true, but a few thoughts on that. So one is, it's true that no one directly says that. But instead, what they do is they just built up the precedent without ever directly saying it. In the same way, this feels make, reminds me of, you know, Richard Posner, who would say, like, you know, all judges care about their policy preferences or whatever. They just don't say that I'm not willing to rule this way or that way. They find a way to say the law allows it, right? And that's just, that's just what judging is. You don't say the law says X, but I think Y, therefore Y. You say, ah, actually, it just so happens that the correct interpretation of the law is consistent with Y. Right? That's just the move of judging. And so then to, it almost feels like you are being naive by taking the way that judges talk and then being like, well, we, they must be doing this literally. Uh, no other strategic reason that they would engage in this behavior. Two things. So I guess one claim is this is, this is still meaningful. It's like a different way they treat originalist arguments and other kinds of arguments. So you do see the court say, in particular cases, we don't care about policy arguments. This is them say, you know, it's been argued that like if we interpret the confrontation clause this way it'll have very bad consequences for criminal prosecutions but that we're stuck we just can't care because the constitution says so yeah but no one thinks some version of i mean maybe some like it's such a straw man to think that there's anyone that thinks that there can be the law and you can just like blatantly ignore it without coming up with some gloss for why that's okay i don't maybe but so just but policy arguments are also some people often think they're part of legal argument so but yeah well that's because there's some ambiguity and then we're like we all know really what you're doing is policy argument so we'll just like feed you what you need to hear to then make the okay good the stretch but so and similarly for for arguments about practice like the court the legislative veto people say oh congress has been doing these legislative vetoes for decades it'd be really disruptive if you struck them down and the court you know says well you know sorry the original meaning of the constitution is very clear that you can't have legislative vetoes so so you're stuck so so and I'm with you. These might all be rhetoric, but that's that's like it seems to be a special kind of rhetoric about the text of the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, okay, uh, yes, you are allowed to say that you're not moved by clear empirical evidence that there will be a negative consequences of something, and you are allowed to say you're not moved by practice, but you are not allowed to say I am not moved by what is legally required for me to do. Well, and in particular, the text and history of the Constitution. Yeah, okay. Sure. Yeah. I mean, part of my claim is that the text and history of the Constitution are what judges are legally required to do. So so this is why it's good that you're talking this way. Yeah, I guess. I mean, right. If someone were to argue in front of the Supreme Court that it says that the Constitution clearly says the president has to be 35, but you know, people are actually at their intellectual prime at 33, therefore the new 35 is 33 or something, no one would go for it. Agreed. And it didn't matter how persuasive some study was documenting that we got the age wrong. Um, no one would change. If you have an argument in the Supreme Court and they say, well, isn't that bad policy? You may well be allowed to say, you know, yes, Your Honor, but the you know, law is just really clear here. Now, maybe you'll have some argument on the policy, but you don't have to. You can say the law is just really clear here. And they'll say, but isn't this not the way we've been doing it for 10 years? And you say, yes, Your Honor, but the law is just really, you know, Constitution is just really clear here. And isn't there precedent against your position? Yes, Your Honor, but, you know, you should just overrule that precedent at this point. But isn't the text of the Constitution against you? Oh, no, Your Honor. The text of the Constitution is not against us. It's ambiguous. You'll always say that. 
right? Oh man, <laughs> I guess it feels like your fallback position is, or not? Maybe it's not your fallback. Your first position is like constitutional law is law. I mean, yeah, that's what law is. You like, you can't say the law says X, but that doesn't matter. Whether or not it's a statute, a regulation, whatever. That's what the law is. <laughs> Good. I, mean, I think we're on the same page, actually. So there are lots of people out there who say, oh, you think the text of the Constitution is law, but, you know, you're just not being sophisticated. The real law of constitutional interpretation is history plus practice plus the likely consequences. They're like, this is like the, a mainstream view. And, and you and I think are on the same page that that other stuff doesn't get treated in legal arguments the same way as stuff like the written text of the Constitution. To be clear on my view then on, of all of that is my view is that whether or not you're interpreting uh, a statute or the Constitution or a regulation or whatever it is, no one wants to say like the law says X, but I'm going to completely ignore it. You know, people some do occasionally if they can have some reason that it would produce absurd results or it must be unconstitutional or something, right? But you don't see a lot of opinions that are just like, no, nah, I'm not doing it um, without some justification for why would be legal to ignore it. That all seems true. The question, though, is like when figuring out what the answer to what the law requires, the extent to which people are swayed by policy arguments and precedent that then influence through motivated reasoning what they think the text says. And the answer has to be a huge amount. And for whether or not you're an originalist or not an originalist. Okay, good. So I think this is the second point of disagreement. One question is what methods of argument do they use? And the other question is what actually sways people, right? Okay. So... I think where we're going is, and I, I'm not going to hold you to it, but I think you're you're at the moment spotting me that these may be the methods of argument people use, that maybe I've discreetly described how people talk about this stuff, but I'm not actually describing like what's going on and people decide the cases or what you know data you'd want to predict how the how the court will decide the cases. Yep. Right. Okay. I agree. So this is this is the other limitation of the claim so far is that the when I say that originalisms are law, I'm describing like the methods of justification that everybody uses, how they feel they need to justify themselves, not necessarily what like actually what they're actually doing. It may well be that either intentionally the justices think, well, I gotta you know I gotta write this originalist opinion, but I'm really doing this because I just can't stand to let the libs win, or through some form of motivated reasoning. Like they think, you know, they think they genuinely think the text is ambiguous. They genuinely think they're resolving it in a way consistent with long-standing principles of interpretation. But lo and behold, you know, four times out of five, that matches their partisan policy preferences, and somebody else's matches the other. And I don't deny either of those things. All I think we have is sort of how people talk about it. So maybe that's time to talk about the third thing, which is whether any of that gets us anywhere. Yep, let's move to that. Yeah, I'm curious on this answer. Okay, so I think it does. So, obviously, <laughs> I guess I think the the way in which everybody talks about law and what they say they need to do to, to interpret the law, that's evidence of this really powerful social norm of what our law is. And that stuff like, like, like if, you, if you secretly thought something else, but you recognize you can't admit it, that's a sign, right? That that's not like a legal move in our system. You know, a certain amount of it goes on, but everybody knows that you can't admit you're doing that, and therefore there are real constraints on your ability to do it. Uh, and I think even the same thing for motivated reasoning. I think when you like recognize that you've been engaged in motivated reasoning or confronted with it, you feel some amount of embarrassment and need to like prove that you're not being overly motivated. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, maybe. Um, but no, I think that in a lot of these cases... There's some text of the Constitution, some precedent is built up over time about what that is, and then we all have strong views about what will produce the better policy consequences based on whatever criteria it is that we care about. And it just so happens that that colors whether or not we think this is the kind of case where the precedent is really important and useful or not really important or useful, or the text really is quite ambiguous or not, because we're all trying to decide whether or not you know, we want to stick with some narrow version of the text or a broad version or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, I agree with this picture. I am a legal realist in addition to being an originalist, but part of what I like is how different this picture is than where we started like two episodes ago. So it's now not a picture of, there are a bunch of different possible ways you can interpret the constitution. And we've usually done it in this, in this way. And why should we do this new crazy way? 
now we have a picture of we have this widespread way we talk about interpreting the constitution that's like when you actually what you say you have to do and we recognize that all of us are imperfect and all of us are not living up to that as well as we could and now the question is what should we do about that right should we should we like then you might see what originalism is as a project of telling trying to hold people to what they actually claim to believe in which would be asking people to somewhat reduce judicial discretion motivated reasoning judicial cheating and living up to like some shared standard of law I now think that you could be making two different kinds of arguments, which is kind of argument one is 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, before you and I are meaningfully on the scene or part of these debates, law professors advanced arguments about what the project of the Supreme Court should be and the role of Supreme Court and constitutional decision-making should be that were explicit about the values that the court should be using that were extra constitutional to make their decisions. And so like, for instance, John Hart, Eli comes to mind of saying, that what the court should be doing is about protecting the political process and that that should be the role of the court. And so it should see its roles as the safeguarder of democracy and it should issue these decisions, not those decisions because they're justified by some sort of political theory. And I see, I don't know, uh, and this is not my area, but it feels like Eli and Dworkin and a range of other people were engaged in this project of sort of starting from first moral principles to think of what the role of a constitution and a court should be and then saying that you should issue decisions to advance those moral principles, something like this. So one thing you can be doing is being like, those kinds of views on what the role of the court is are all sort of silly because their role is just to figure out what the law is and then issue opinions based on that. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, if you're arguing against those guys, I'm not in a huge hurry to defend that because I think a lot, of that, a lot of that stuff was weird public law fever dream and why people like me think that so much of public law scholarship is basically nonsense. However, that's one kind of argument you can be making. The other kind of argument you could be making is if in any individual case, when people appeal to originalism and say, like, here is the answer to how we should think about, you know, Citizens of United or Heller or whatever else, and just act as if like there is an answer that is clear based on, you know, some historian that found these documents from 1788. And say, well, before the Constitution was ratified, actually, you know, in New Jersey, they had a militia. Therefore, you can't have, uh, like, handgun control in Chicago. I think, like, this is just crap. This is way different than saying that there are some limits on what the court can and cannot do. This is just, like, a set of evidence that people have decided to prioritize over other sets of evidence. And it's the latter thing that I think is... So maybe you've moved the debate a huge amount to get, you know, to get someone like me to say that the Dworkin Eli views isn't what the court should be up to. But to get me the next step to be like, you know, we should be going Thomas and Gorsuch and thinking that we've got privileged arguments about reversing the modern administrative state, that I'm not following. Okay, good. So, so I'm happy about the first. I agree that's a big thing, but I write that I'm also just in the second. But that argument you made sounded bad. I, I assume it was intentionally designed to sound bad. Um, yeah, no, that was to characterize your position. Yeah, okay, good. I want, I want to at least get the, the narrower wedge in that even in a case like Heller or Citizens United, at some level, the arguments are still hostage to the historical evidence. That's sort of a consequence of having ruled out all the other things is that there's some kind of, there's some kind of implicit premises going on there that involve like actual historical questions of what the law was back then. And so at some level, it's hostage to the evidence. It doesn't sound like... New Jersey had a militia once, therefore, was a very good argument. But for somebody who thinks, you know, the Second Amendment, you know, deciding what the scope of the Second Amendment is, there's like several steps in which everybody is trying to trace their arguments back to the founding. Maybe it's, they want to say the Second Amendment was originally understood to be ambiguous. That's a historical question. And then they want to say that within the ambiguity, it's legitimate to consider public safety. That's a historical question. And both of those, it seems to me, are, are plausible, but not obviously right. But that there's some there's some role for history to answer even those like even individual Supreme Court cases about about big topics, hopefully in a smart way rather than a dumb way. Got it. Okay, but you still think that if the Second Amendment required required something, even if precedent had built been built on an incorrect premise uh, 150 years ago, and we had case after case after case that followed from that incorrect premise, best move is to just like get rid of all of that subsequent precedent and go back to whatever the initial correct correct outcome is. Uh, if it's sufficiently clear that it was wrong, yes. Yeah. And I assume, though, that we'd have to be pretty Bayesian about this and that this is 
all of these other people's views and opinions and ways that they've settled these and the settled opinions, that should be really powerful evidence that we shouldn't do this lightly. Yeah, I think so. I actually saw it. So I think the right way to be Bayesian about that kind of thing is especially the views of people who are trying to ask the same question you're asking. So if back to our earlier conversation, if you think that like a bunch of those precedents were decided by people who didn't care about meaning the constitution, they were just like results oriented and you know, they were open about that. Then you might give their views what's less weight. But for the people who, by all evidence, were trying in good faith to answer the same question you're asking, yeah, it should take a lot to be willing to to go against, you know, a consensus or like good explanation of what new evidence you have to update, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And for instance, we think that running a big modern country is impossible to do without something that looks like the administrative state. So we shouldn't just willy nilly start striking down the various doctrines and laws that make that possible. Uh, sure, we shouldn't we shouldn't do anything willy nilly. And uh, even better. There was an administrative state at the founding, as people like to point out. So obviously the whole administrative state's not unconstitutional. What, because we had like a postmaster general or something? Or we had delegated authority to the postmaster general, but also to like tons of tax assessors running around trying to figure out how to run the first direct tax, steamboats. There's like it's weird because people like to both simultaneously say originalism would destroy the administrative state and also originalists are hypocrites because they don't pay attention to the evidence of the history of the administrative state. But but there's tons of stuff like that. So now the question is, what adjustments would we have to make? And I'm wondering... Yeah, both of, by the way, both of those arguments against originalists sound right to me, which uh, I didn't know about the hypocrites one, but but now I'm on board with that too. They don't have the courage of their conviction to destroy the country. So I think I think the problem is too many do, right? Uh, <laughs> maybe next time we should talk about some examples and applications. Like we should come yeah, up good. with like three or four, like, okay, where would this actually take us? Questions. Good, let's do um, it. And, and walk through them or whatever, you know, whichever ones you're worried, most worried about. Give me some examples. Well, I mean, so we as we have to do it, we have to do it next time. But so we could do the administrative state. We could do I don't know. You want to do? Well, we do the administrative state right now. We could do what else? You know, all right. So my instinct actually is that we should stop here. If there's one or two questions, we could take one or two questions. We should stop the recording and start next time with with the examples. That might be better. Sounds good. So anybody out there have questions they want to get in? I realize we've just been prattling on. All right. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Or until next week when Adam tries to destroy the administrative state and I try to save it. All right, right, this was good. Thank you, everybody. See you guys. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to share, hit subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to also check out the other Dissenting Opinions episodes where I talk with top legal minds about a Supreme Court case they believe is misunderstood. Finally, if you're looking for more current SCOTUS talk, Check out Divided Argument, an unscheduled and unpredictable Supreme Court podcast hosted by me and Danis. 